Hurricane Idalia could strengthen to become a major hurricane as it follows a path to the west coast of Florida. It could make landfall tomorrow and then move on to Georgia. In Florida, local officials have warned residents to evacuate and say they have little time left to prepare. It's Tuesday, August 29th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, an ace fighter pilot from Ukraine known by his call sign Juice became an icon for helping to deny Russia air superiority in the early days of the war. Today, he has been given a hero's funeral. And the parent company of Facebook and Instagram has long been concerned about fake accounts that spread pro-China propaganda. All the way through, the questions have been, is this really one operation or is it lots of little operations which are doing the same kind of thing? Meta now says it was indeed one operation and it's been shut down. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. At this hour, Hurricane Adelia is moving across the Gulf of Mexico with maximum sustained winds of 90 miles an hour. The outer bands are currently lashing the Florida Keys. Governor Ron DeSantis warns if you live along the Gulf Coast, now is the time to get to higher ground. Make sure you're heeding the warnings from your local emergency management officials. Make sure you're doing what you need to do uh, to keep yourself and your family safe. Cities like Tampa could experience experience life-threatening storm surge. Stephanie Columbini with member station WUSF has that report. The grocery store parking lot was packed in a neighborhood close to Tampa's waterfront. Paula Hoffman was getting ready to evacuate inland to a friend's house near Orlando, like she did last year for Hurricane Ian. It's difficult because you have to like make plans and everything and I'm not really good at making plans and then I leave everything like for the last minute. Brian Rose hopes to ride out the storm at home but he's worried about flooding. We're in an older home, five feet above sea level, and you talk about seven-foot storm surges. That's our biggest concern. He says his family's bags are packed in case they decide to leave. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Columbini in Tampa. A University of North Carolina graduate student has been ordered held without bond a day after the fatal shooting of a professor. Liz Schlemmer of member station WUNC reports. Officials say 34-year-old graduate student Tai Lei Chi killed his advisor, Professor Dijie Yen, Monday afternoon in the Caldo Laboratories on campus. Yen was a professor of applied physical sciences and has worked for the university since 2019. The UNC Police Department has charged Chi with first-degree murder and possession of a weapon on educational property, both felonies. The shooting led to a three-hour campus-wide lockdown. Chi is being held at the Orange County Jail without bail. For NPR News, I'm Lish Schlemmer in Chapel Hill. Facebook's parent company says it has disrupted a sweeping online influence operation linked to China. NPR's Shannon Bond has details. Meta says the pro-China campaign is part of the largest covert influence operation it's ever come across. The fake accounts are on Facebook and Instagram, as well as TikTok, YouTube, Reddit, and many smaller platforms and online forums. They post articles supporting China, denigrating American and European foreign policy, and repeating identical purportedly personal comments that appear to be copied and pasted from a list. Meta says it removed more than 8,000 accounts, pages, and groups with a collective following of more than half a million accounts. The company says many of those followers were themselves fake accounts and that few real people interacted with the content. Shannon Bond, NPR News. 
Wall Street at the close, the Dow up 292 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston is doing away with gender markers on city marriage certificates. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more on today's announcement. The city's director of policy and strategic initiatives, Kimberly Roden, received the city's first marriage certificate without gender markers. They married their partner on June 10th. They say the policy change better reflects people in the LGBTQ community. A marriage certificate is a symbol of love and commitment, but unfortunately for people like me, the certificate's outdated and narrow gender markers were a glaring reminder that our city still had a long way to go to acknowledging our existence. The city is also creating more gender-aware guidelines for city services. They include updating when to ask people about their gender identity and pronouns. There's also new guidance on how gender data should be collected when it's necessary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. The state's largest health insurer says it will cover the cost of the overdose reversal medication Narcan. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts made the announcement today. The move comes as opioid-related deaths in the state continue to rise. Last year, they reached a new record high. Officials in Lemonster and Central Mass are fighting to keep open the only maternity ward in the city. UMass Medical plans to close the birthing center next month. Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella is asking the Department of Public Health to reject the plan. He says Greater Lemonster has more than 100,000 residents and there is no ready way to send expectant mothers to Worcester or Gardner for care. In a lot of cases, there is no plan to transport people. There, there are no signed contracts with transportation companies. There are no signed contracts with ambulance services to transport uh, those that may need ambulance service. It just, then it just comes back to the local communities, and we're already stretched. A lawyer for UMass Medical has said that to maintain its current service, the hospital would need to recruit more nurses, OBGYNs, and others, but there aren't enough births locally to support the hiring. The city of Braintree will be removing two obsolete dams at the site of a former cork factory. The removal of the Armstrong and Ames Pond dams will allow the Monatiquot River to return to its natural path. The city also says the removal of the dams will allow river herring to access the upriver spawning habitat. The project will also include the construction of a public walking trail over the river. Work gets underway this week. 75 degrees now in the Boston area. Should be heavy on the clouds overnight tonight. Foggy, rainy, maybe some real downpours. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow looks like we should have showers in the morning, but then sunshine by the afternoon. Highs nudging 80 degrees. Could have sunshine again for Thursday. This is WBUR. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Evacuations have been ordered and schools were closed today along much of Florida's Gulf Coast. Hurricane Idalia is expected to hit the state tomorrow with winds of 125 miles an hour and a storm surge as high as 15 feet in some areas. The National Hurricane Center says the storm is likely to make landfall in Florida's Big Bend region. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says people who live along the Gulf Coast from Tampa Bay to Panama City need to prepare. you got to watch how this thing goes and, and where it can impact. It could veer west and hit places like Tallahassee. It could veer further east and end up impacting more directly uh, other parts of the Florida peninsula. Well, NPR's Greg Allen is covering all this from St. Petersburg on Tampa Bay. And Greg, tell us what you're seeing around town. 
Well, we see a lot of people getting ready for this hurricane. Um, Tampa Bay appears to be likely to avoid a direct hit from the storm, but the big concern here is the storm surge, which is estimated to be as much as four to seven feet. And this is an area that's very low and susceptible to flooding. I was on St. Petersburg Beach today where we ran into Steve Sewell. He was filling as many sandbags as he could to protect his house from storm surge. I'll tell you what, it's been hard trying to get enough sand for your home. I mean, this one little layer of sandbags just doesn't seem to do it. I mean, you, they're calling for that four-foot surge, so I'm at sea level, so I'm trying to get up three or four feet, but, you know, finding bags. There are no bags. And, and that's near the southern end of the potential landfall range. More than 20 Florida counties have called for evacuations. Does it seem like people are following those orders? Well, officials say they're not seeing the number of cars on the road that they've seen in some earlier evacuations in previous years, including last year in Hurricane Ian. They say that might be because people have learned you don't need to go far. You're always told to just go out of the evacuation zone a mile or two. People are being encouraged to stay with friends and family or, or book a hotel room for a night or two. And that's what uh, Marisa Canuck is doing. I talked to her today at St. Petersburg Beach. She was doing what she could to safeguard her home, but was planning to spend the night in a short-term rental just a few miles inland. Well, I came from New Jersey. I moved down here about four years ago, and I lived through Superstorm Sandy. So I've seen what water can do and I'm not taking any chances. You know, St. Petersburg Beach, and in fact, this whole area, Tampa Bay, was very quiet today. Many people do seem to have evacuated, but some say they're staying. Why would they stay despite warnings that the storm surge could be seven feet or more? Well, some people feel that they are ready and can safely ride out a storm. I visited a restaurant in St. Pete Beach today that's planning to remain open even tomorrow, the owner said. Steve Sewell, uh, the guy who was doing sandbags earlier, said he's not planning to leave. I'm going to stay. I say, I've, I've done the run to Alabama, you know, and you come back and your neighborhood's bone dry, and you're like, so I don't know. I think this time I'm going to hang. I hope it's the right call. <laughs> Idalia is expected to make landfall tomorrow well north of Tampa Bay, but the storm surge here could begin arriving well before that. We'll talk about the situation where it is likely to make landfall. What impacts are people likely to see there? Well, that's up in the Big Bend area. That's where Florida's Gulf Coast meets the Panhandle. It's a relatively undeveloped area with just uh, mostly small towns. At the same time, it's especially susceptible to storm surge. And many homes there are older homes not built to withstand hurricanes. With 125 mile per hour winds and a storm surge as high as 15 feet, Idalia is going to do a lot of damage. Um, search and rescue crews are standing by, officials say, and they may begin rescues tomorrow evening if rescues are necessary, just as soon as the storm passes. Uh, Governor DeSantis says because that's a rural area with a lot of trees, there's likely to be widespread power outages and down trees and lines. There are uh, tens of thousands of linemen pre-positioned, ready to go to, re go to work to restore power. But all that's likely to take time, especially if we see major damage to the infrastructure. Uh, Dahlia is a fast-moving storm, and it's going to be bringing tropical storm force winds, heavy rain, and storm surge beyond Florida up into coastal Georgia by tomorrow afternoon. And officials are warning about the possibility of flooding and tornadoes as the storm moves inland through Florida and up to the Carolinas. And PR's Greg Allen, thank you. You're welcome. Let's turn now to other developments in Florida, where more details are still emerging about that racist and deadly attack in Jacksonville over the weekend. A white gunman who had espoused extremist views opened fire in a Dollar General store, killing three people, all of them black. City officials have been clear. They say hate has no place in Jacksonville. But during the last year, some organizations have staged increasingly brazen displays of hate 
Street in that city and across the state. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is here. And Odette, just fill me in here. What kind of activities are we talking that extremists have undertaken in Jacksonville? Well, prior to this shooting, Mary Kay, uh, Mary Louise, the most brazen recent display was the projection of a giant cross and swastika onto a downtown building in Jacksonville, um, which prompted the city council to pass legislation barring those kind of projections onto private property without the owner's consent. Mm-hmm. Um, but that stunt has been repeated elsewhere in Florida. And it's an example both of how emboldened the movement has become in that state and of how they're coordinating with each other. So, you know, you may recall just this past June, neo-Nazis were waving flags outside the entrance to Disney World. Um, But I will note that Jacksonville authorities say that so far there's no evidence that the suspect in the Jacksonville shooting was connected to a large group. Um, But the tragedy is happening at a time that Florida really is at the leading edge of a resurgence of extremist activity in this country. When you say at the leading edge, what's the data? What are the numbers to back that up? Well, the Anti-Defamation League has documented over 700 instances of white supremacist propaganda within the last five years. So that includes things like flyering and banner drops. Uh, But also uh, anti-Semitic incidents have nearly doubled in that state between 2020 and 2022. Um, Another organization that tracks hate, the Southern Poverty Law Center, has documented 89 hate and anti-government groups in Florida in 2022. And that trails only California. And actually, we know that that count is incomplete. Um, For example, we know one anti-Semitic group called the Goyim Defense League announced last year that they were moving from California to Florida. So, you know, this is all contributing to an environment where some minorities are feeling unsafe. You know, just last May, we saw a number of organizations, including the NAACP, the League of United Latin American Citizens, uh, Equality Florida and the Human Rights Campaign all issue travel and relocation warnings for Florida. Why? I mean, why does Florida seem to be such fertile ground for these groups, these movements to spread their messages? Well, to start, Florida is diverse, uh, and to extremists, that translates to being target rich. But there's another thing here that relates to how extremists and their movements operate. Here's Oren Siegel of the Anti-Defamation League. Extremists never miss an opportunity to exploit a public discussion, and many of those happening in Florida are consistent with their agenda. So, Mary Louise, you know, specifically, they're finding common cause with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's, quote, war on woke, um, this agenda that further marginalizes black people and their history and trans voices and so on. Well, and on that, I should note, I know Governor DeSantis has condemned uh, this most recent violence. He's also condemned targeting people based on their race. Yes. And he's also bolstered measures to combat anti-Semitism in Florida. But he's also been at the leading edge of anti-trans state legislation in a state where trans people and their allies are increasingly unsafe. Um, Here's Cassie Miller of the Southern Poverty Law Center. We shouldn't see demonstrations against LGBTQ inclusive spaces and things like racist violence as separate. They're all aimed at creating fear among the targeted groups. This is all part of a broader political project. And so this idea that the political hard right can just peel off one group for Mm -hmm. protections but target another, you know, it ends up making all of these groups unsafe. Thank you, Odette. Thank you. And Pierre's Odette Youssef.
All right, you're at a concert. Do you stand up or sit down? That debate reignited this week after a fan at an Adele show in Las Vegas stood, sang, and filmed himself during her show, even though many of the people in his section were seated. A security guard got involved, so did Adele, and as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, making everybody happy at a concert isn't always easy. In a video, Juan Lastra passionately belts out every word to Adele's song. A woman comes up and tells him people are upset. When a security guard approaches him, Adele stops the show. Another fan responds. Adele was having none of it. It is kind of our worst nightmare. Sam Swirsky is the house manager at Wolf Trap National Park for the Performing Arts in Virginia. It is one of the worst situations you could have where uh, the concert actually stops and uh, the artist is talking to my staff about how we should be doing our job. It might seem like a personal decision. You want to stand up and sing, or you want or need to stay seated. There are regular debates about this. Swirsky says what his venue enforces is up to the artist. You know, do you want us to ha have a, a hands-off uh, attitude? And a lot of artists thrive on that. They want to see their fans up on their feet, dancing, singing along. Um, that's just part of what gives them the energy to put on a great performance. At Adele's concert, fans say there were signs encouraging them to stand up. But when there's no guidance from the venue, what should you do? Audrey Fix Schaefer is a spokesperson for IMP, which owns concert venues in the D.C. area. It's really uh, a bit of a social contract with other concert goers where people are able to enjoy it by being conscientious of each other, but then also knowing that everybody enjoys it in a different way. As for Juan Lastra, the fan who made headlines, he told TMZ he was sorry others complained. But I only had one opportunity to see her and I took it. I took it as I wanted. Lastra thanked Adele for this breathtaking night and for standing up for me. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, two farms in New Hampshire change some of their practices so they can ease the threats they face from climate change. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, reminding you to shop, eat, and drink local this summer. Enjoy homegrown farm-to-table meals to go twice a week. VolanteFarms.com for menus. A big upsweep today on Wall Street. The Dow rose more than eight-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly one-and-a-half percent, and the Nasdaq grew by one-and-three-quarters percent as tech stocks rebounded after a slow start to the month. A Lowell-based nonprofit business accelerator is expanding to three more states. Entrepreneurship for All will launch a virtual program in Arizona, California, and Texas in January. The company offers business training and mentorship to help traditionally underrepresented people start and grow their businesses. It aims to serve 50,000 entrepreneurs by the year 2030. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. 
Kind of steamy out there right now. Showers, even some pelting rain overnight tonight. Not too chilly, about 67 at the lowest. Tomorrow should bring more rain for the first part of the day. Maybe the rumble of thunder, but slowly the sunshine burns through tomorrow with temperatures up around 78, 75 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Prices for prescription drugs here in the U.S. are way higher than in other countries. Today we have learned which 10 drugs the Biden administration wants to make more affordable for those on Medicare. They include medications for blood clots, diabetes, heart conditions, arthritis. Well, the push to rein in prescription drug costs is something a lot of us have tracked or waited on for years. Some experts tell NPR this is the first round bell of what is expected to be a heavyweight battle between the government and drug makers. Well, let's talk it through with Neera Tandon, domestic policy advisor to President Biden. We've reached her at the White House to ask why prioritize these drugs? Well, the most important issue here is that this is the first 10 drugs. The Inflation Reduction Act specifies that we are negotiating these first 10 drugs this year, and then next year there will be an additional 15 drugs. After that, 15 drugs and then 20 drugs a year. So the Inflation Reduction Act itself, the statutes specify the requirements of what makes the list. And it's really focused on the highest expenditures by Medicare. So you're hoping this is the beginning of a list that will get longer. Got it. Oh, we know it's the beginning. It's definitely the beginning. Well, let me put to you some of the challenges out there. One, the pharmaceutical industry contends that these type price negotiations will chill innovation, will ultimately hurt patient access to new medications. How do you respond to that? This has been a well-studied issue. The Congressional Budget Office did a real deep dive into this particular question, and they determined that the Inflation Reduction Act Medicare negotiation would only affect, would limit one drug out of thousands in the next 10 years, just a handful of drugs over the next 30 years. So this argument about innovation, we consider it a false argument because- Well, and I hear you saying it's been studied, but if drug makers, who, as the name suggests, are the people making the drugs, if they say this is going to chill innovation, um, you're entirely confident that that's not the case? Yes, because they're able to manage with lower drug costs in every other country in the world. And so there is plenty of investment that they can make. And what we're really saying is that it is wrong for Americans to pay two to three times more in America than they pay than these same drug companies for the same drugs charge in other countries. Just practically speaking, as you know, lawsuits have already been filed around the country to stop price negotiations like this. Um, pharmaceutical companies are calling these provisions unconstitutional. Is there a real possibility these price cuts may not actually come to pass? Well, first of all, Medicare has the ability to negotiate and does negotiate and has negotiated for decades uh, every other aspect of the healthcare system. It's the only reason why 
Medicare has not been negotiating drug prices is because there was a prohibition in the law, a sweetheart deal that really the pharmaceutical companies got decades ago. The Inflation Reduction Act ended that. There is absolutely nothing in the Constitution that prohibits Medicare from negotiating drug prices. So to people who may f- be thinking about you know something totally different, but say student debt relief, which the mm-hmm. administration argued would happen and was constitutional, that plan was struck down by the Supreme Court. You're sh- quite sure that drug price negotiations won't wind up in a, in a similar situation? So the argument that the court used against student debt relief, an argument we think is wrong, that argument was that the student debt relief was a major question for Congress. Mm-hmm. This is a major question that has been answered by Congress by passing the Inflation Reduction Act. On the timing, whatever price drops do result from these negotiations, my understanding is they will not happen before 2026. That's obviously after the 2024 election. How do you get voters to give the president credit for this when they go to the polls? The Inflation Reduction Act is already producing lower costs for Americans. $35 insulin for seniors is a product of the Inflation Reduction Act. We've also lowered health care costs for 15 million Americans uh, by $800. And these drug prices will be public in September of 2024. People will see these prices are down. These are subject to negotiation, but they will be implemented in 2026. But people will know that these, these prices are coming in the fall of 2024. Neera Tandon on the line from the White House, where she is domestic policy advisor. Thanks so much. Thank you. Today in Kyiv, a funeral was held for one of Ukraine's ace fighter pilots. He went by the call sign Juice and had become a public figure advocating for Western military assistance. More on the impact that Juice's death is having on Ukrainians from NPR's Brian Mann in Kyiv. In the early weeks of the war, I interviewed Juice as he and other Ukrainian pilots scrambled successfully to prevent Russia from gaining air superiority. They were waiting for a much more effective threat from the Russian Air Force side. Ukraine's tiny fleet of Soviet-era MiG-29s held off Russia's larger fleet of newer, more sophisticated jet fighters. But right from the start, Juice told me his country needed better equipment. They needed F-16s. It's a great problem to fight with their uh, fighters for us because they have an advantage in this technology. Unfortunately, our jets are not capable to be effective against them. At the time, Juice wasn't allowed to tell me his real name for security reasons. Then over the weekend, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, announced in an emotional video address that Juice, full name Captain Andrei Pirshikov, age 30, was dead. Juice helped our country a lot, Zelensky said, describing his death as a catastrophe in the sky. Two other pilots were also killed in the collision Friday between jet airplanes used for training exercises. The cause of the crash is under investigation. Tuesday morning in Kyiv, Pilshikov's casket was carried by an honor guard into a cathedral. As priests in red robes chanted prayers, members of the 40th Tactical Aviation Brigade draped Juice's coffin in the blue and yellow Ukrainian flag. Members of his family and community placed roses and asters next to his officer's cap. I'm pilot MiG-29. One of Juice's fellow MiG pilots, who declined to give his name for security reasons, said he met Pilshikov nearly a decade ago at university and flew a lot of combat missions with him. I asked him to describe Pilshikov's talent as a fighter pilot. 
Oh, it's not easy, he said. Words cannot describe it. He was a very smart guy, just a great pilot. Jews gained fame when he was put forward by Ukraine's military as a spokesman, calling on the West to donate F-16 jets to Ukraine. He lived long enough to see the U.S. finally agree to allow countries, including the Netherlands and Norway, to contribute dozens of the more advanced fighters. His fellow Ukrainian pilot told NPR Juice was supposed to take the English language test this week to prepare for F-16 training. It's very sad. His dream to fly F-16s almost came true, the pilot said. Unfortunately, things happened as they happened. After his death, Ukraine's Air Force granted Pilshikov a posthumous promotion to the rank of major. The two other pilots killed in the crash, Vyacheslav Munka and Sergei Prokhozhin, were also honored. This accident was a symbolic loss, but also devastating in practical terms. Ukraine is now in desperate need of enough aviators to fly. The F-16s expected to arrive next year. Ryan Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 10 minutes, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, Meta, says Chinese law enforcement is behind the biggest online influence operation the company has ever disrupted. That story and much more still to come. It's the Red Sox and Houston Astros again at Fenway Park tonight in a few hours. Tonight's pitching lineup is the same as it was last Thursday in Houston. The Sox will go with Brian Bayo. The Astros will tap J.P. France 7-10 start time tonight. Should be a pretty nice night for a ball game at Fenway. Look for overnight tonight, though. Clouds and some fog, rain, maybe some real downpours. Temperatures in the mid-60s. For tomorrow, we should have rain in the morning, but then sunshine by the afternoon, possibly nudging 80 degrees. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. Go EndlessEnergy.com. Yes, it's scary. It can cause destruction and loss of life, and there's reasons to be scared of it, but fire is not bad or good. It just is. But people make choices about where to live and how to rebuild after a fire. More than ever, communities are asking how to rebuild with resilience after your world has burned down. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Millions of people could be affected by Hurricane Idalia as it hurtles toward Florida's Gulf Coast, where it's expected to slam ashore tomorrow morning as a major Category 3 storm with winds of at least 111 miles per hour. Evacuations have also been ordered in parts of Georgia and South Carolina, both under storm advisories. Idalia grew from a tropical storm into a hurricane early today, causing floods in western Cuba that forced people in coastal towns there to flee to higher ground. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell is um, urging folks living along Florida's Gulf Coast to do the same. While we are engaged uh, with our states to prepare for the path of this storm, it's critical that the people that are in the path of this storm are also prepared. And I know that the people of Florida are no stranger to storms, and I encourage all Floridians to take this storm seriously. 
Three major hurricanes have struck Florida in the past several years, and the state is still recovering from the impact of Hurricane Ian just last September. Residents in southern Georgia are bracing for what could still be Hurricane Idalia when it passes into the state tomorrow morning. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting has more. Officials in Valdosta, Georgia, are anticipating up to six inches of rain, enough to overwhelm stormwater drains and cause flash flooding. But Lowndes County Public Information Officer Megan Barwick says people should also prepare for power outages caused by hurricane-force winds. Make sure that you have your emergency supply kit that has non-perishable food items, medicines, anything like that for everyone in your household for up to three days. Lowndes County leaders advise those living in vulnerable areas to seek alternative shelter. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Three Massachusetts entities will receive a total of nearly $8.5 million from the federal government to recoup costs from the pandemic. More than half the funds will be used to reimburse Tufts Medical Center for overtime costs its employees incurred during the pandemic. City of Cambridge will get more than $2 million for the additional staff it brought in during the pandemic. And Lawrence will get nearly $1.5 million for the cost of COVID testing kits. The woman tapped as the state's interim secretary of transportation has not taken on the role yet, but Monica Tibbetts-Nutt is already winning support to become the permanent replacement for outgoing transportation chief Gina Fiendaka. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Tibbetts-Nutt is currently the undersecretary of transportation. She'll take over for Fiendaka when Fiendaka's resignation goes into effect next month. Transit advocate Brian Kane of the MBTA Advisory Board tells WBUR's Radio Boston he's impressed by Tibbetts-Nutt's prior experience as head of the Boston-area private 128 Business Council shuttle service. She ran that thing like a Swiss clock. So Monica is the real deal. And if the governor is listening, I would urge her to take the acting part of that title off right now and just appoint Monica as the next secretary of transportation. Kane and Tibbetts not once worked together at the MBTA advisory board. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The town of Ashland is roping off a town square because of the invasion of wasps. Town officials wrote on Facebook that the swarm in Montenegro Square includes yellow jackets and paper wasps. Ashland's DPW is working to clear the square. Meantime, people are asked to stay away from the area. Boston Children's Museum is hosting a party today for the city's newest public school students and their families. They'll have access to the museum's exhibits and a chance to explore a school bus and even get a new backpack. Here's museum president and CEO Carol Charno. It's just a fantastic jamboree um, and a wonderful way to kick off the school year for these wonderful, happy incoming kindergartners. Students can also get eye and dental checkups and sign up for kindergarten. The party just got underway at 4.30. It runs until 7.30. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. Mostly cloudy skies due in overnight tonight. A few showers falling to the mid-60s. Rain could last through tomorrow morning before clouds gradually make an exit and the sunshine moves in tomorrow. Should be a nice afternoon tomorrow, right about 78 degrees. 75 degrees now in the Boston area at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it has disrupted a wide-ranging online influence operation, an operation linked to Chinese law enforcement. The campaign is using fake accounts across more than 50 websites to spread pro-China messages and attack critics. NPR's Shannon Bond joins us with more. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, tell me more about the goal of this campaign. Yeah, these fake accounts posted articles supporting China and denigrating U.S. and European foreign policy. Uh, many of the articles and comments that po they posted appear to be copied and pasted from a list. And you know, this was not just on Facebook and Instagram. As you said, it was in many other sites, so Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, but also lots of smaller platforms, even sort of random Internet forums in places like Australia and Nigeria. And Meta says altogether, this is the largest covert influence operation it's ever come across. And I think that underscores that China has become you know, a bigger player in these sort of online influence campaigns as part of its broader propaganda efforts. Uh, this operation has been given by researchers the name Spamiflage because these fake accounts tended to intersperse their political posts with sort of random spam posts. So they were sort of using that spam as camouflage, hence spamouflage. Wow. Okay. And you just said this was the biggest covert influence operation Meta has ever seen. Was it also effective? What's Meta saying about that? It, it turns out actually it was not very effective. Now, Meta says it took down more than 8,000 accounts, pages, and groups, but it said many of the followers that they had amassed were themselves fake accounts created by content farms. These were just not reaching a lot of real people. And these fake accounts were also pretty sloppy. You know, they were using repeated headlines, spelling errors. They were clearly working shifts that lined up with a Beijing workday. So you know, it was kind of easy to spot. But it is an important breakthrough for researchers who had seen clusters of this kind of activity for years. Here's what Ben Nimmo, Meta's global threat intelligence lead, told me. All the way through, the questions have been, is this really one operation or is it lots of little operations which are doing the same kind of thing? And now, after all these years, we actually have the answer to those questions. Yes, it is one operation. And we have managed to tie it back to individuals who are associated with Chinese law enforcement. And I should say Meta did not give any further details about exactly how it made that attribution to Chinese law enforcement. You know, I'm hearing all about this online influence campaign. And of course, my mind goes to Russia. Do we know how this campaign compares to Russia's efforts to, among other things, influence the 2016 presidential campaign? Well, you know, I think there's sort of an interesting shift we've seen, right? So back in 2016, much of that activity was, you know, directly on these social media platforms, the Russian internet Internet research agency bought bought ads. They used groups. T today, we often see these fake accounts posting links to external websites that were set up by the influence operation, you know, and using other smaller platforms, all to avoid detection by these big companies. Meta also gave an update on a separate Russian operation aimed at undermining support for Ukraine. It's been spoofing websites of news outlets, including The Washington Post and Fox News. But like that Chinese operation, it has not appeared to get much traction among real people. Thank you, Shannon. 
Thanks, Mary Louise. NPR Shannon Bond. As this summer of record-breaking heat waves drags on, millions of students are returning to school in buildings that don't have good or any air conditioning. NPR Sequoia Carrillo reports on how heat can influence learning. Eric Hitchner doesn't have air conditioning in his Philadelphia classroom. I'm on the fourth floor of a 111-year-old building. Heat rises. But he does have a smart board, a fancy one, that the school invested in during COVID. It tells him the temperature and humidity of the room. Those things are not inexpensive. I would have allocated that money for air conditioning, but nobody asked me. He's clocked temperatures as high as 93 degrees. Even when it isn't that hot outside, his classroom in Building 21, where he teaches high school English, still overheats. I think in uh, September, it's 68 to 72 degrees all day. It is 86 degrees in my classroom and 65% humidity. This year, the school district of Philadelphia opted to start after Labor Day, a different approach than past years. The district says the decision was made to, quote, reduce the likelihood that extreme temperatures would impact their instruction. Hitchner School is one of an estimated 36,000 public schools nationwide without adequate AC. That's according to a 2020 report from the Government Accountability Office. Many schools know it's a problem, but other things get in the way. Building 21 got AC units for every classroom years ago. We purchased them, we had them delivered, and then the school district told us that the electric grid couldn't take that. So they sat in storage for all those years, and we've never had another one installed. Jackie Nowicki, a director at the GAO who oversaw the report, says her team found similar things while collecting data and visiting schools for the study. She recalls one Maryland district. The district had refitted some of its schools with air conditioning but they didn't update the pipes and insulation that were serving the HVAC systems. And so that caused moisture and condensation problems in the buildings. And so those school officials were concerned that the moisture and condensation could lead to air quality and mold problems. But to remedy those issues uh, would cost over a million dollars for each building. The GAO conducted a nationally representative survey and visited 55 schools in 16 districts. They set out to look at the state of public schools. But the main complaint that kept coming up? Heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, or HVAC systems. They found that an estimated 41% of districts needed to update or replace HVAC systems in at least half of their schools. You know, if basic health and safety systems like plumbing and air conditioning and ventilation are failing, that should set off alarm bells for people. Kate King, the head of the National Association of School Nurses, says AC or not, they have seen a higher rate of heat-related illness from students in the past few years. We see that not infrequently, especially kids wearing their new fall school clothes which are heavy and sweatery in 90-degree heat, and then going out and running around on the playground. King, who is also a school nurse in Columbus, Ohio, says she's always focused on keeping an eye out for students with chronic conditions. Kids with asthma, with sickle cell, extreme temperatures can precipitate attacks. Kids with seizure disorders, even kiddos with diabetes, because when they get dehydrated, it's, you know, a different ball game. But Sometimes even when the classroom has AC, the temperatures are so hot outside that students lose out on learning time in order to cool off. Damara Samudio-Galvan is a first grade teacher. Every day, she oversees a 30-minute recess period for her kids at Aventura Community School in Southeast Nashville. 
They've been in school since early August with temperatures between 90 and 100 degrees outside every day. She calls them back into the classroom and has the difficult task of getting them to focus for a math lesson. All of them just look completely worn out and miserable. Um, and I always feel terrible because they're so tiny. <laughs> She's had to get creative to keep them focused. All of the kids have to fill up their water bottles and rehydrate when they get inside. And then they take deep breaths to cool down. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Summers are busy for farmers in New England. It's when they make much of their money and when we get to eat all the corn and berries we can snarf down. But farms in the region are facing a growing threat from climate change. As part of this week's climate change coverage called Beyond Normal, New England News Collaborative's Mara Hoplomazian goes to two farms in New Hampshire that are trying to head off the threat. It was hot and humid on the July day. I visited Fresh Start Farms in Concord, and vegetables were growing strong. This is African eggplants and tomatoes, amaranth, kale. Anthony Munene is the project manager for the new American Sustainable Agriculture Project, which has farms across New Hampshire. The organization helps set up people who arrive as immigrants or refugees with training and land to start as farmers. Munene has been with the organization for more than eight years, and he's seen the effects of climate change. I know this year it's raining a lot, but sometimes it's, it, you know, it's either it's too hot or too much rain. Fresh Start has not had the same experience as some other farms this summer, who've lost whole harvests to flooding. But they've had their share of drought, pests, and soggy fields. This summer, with help from the USDA, they've opened up a new demonstration farm where they're trying some things they hope will make them more resilient to any climate challenge. Munene says it comes down to two things. Soil and water, soil and water. If you're able to have good soil which has enough organic matter, then it can keep and also release water quick, which is good. At the Climate Smart demonstration farm, Munene's team started by planting a cover crop, that gets planted outside of the usual growing season to help keep the soil healthy. And they built high tunnels, a kind of greenhouse, with solar panels on top and rain barrels for irrigation. Munene says a big help is the crops farmers are growing. They are growing very handy, ethnic crops, which don't get affected alone by too much rain. They are growing like amaranth, amaranth like water. Night scent, night scent laugh. A lot of water. Everywhere people are growing lettuce and tomatoes are rotting. Just a few miles from the Fresh Start demonstration farm, the current generation of family farmers running Bohannon Farm are also trying out some new practices for climate resilience. Nate Robertson is in charge of the dairy cows, about 120 right now. So even before humans start feeling heat stress, really, the cows feel it a lot. At Bohannon, they've set up fans and sprinklers for the cows on hot days. And they're looking into new ways of breeding cows and designing barns for a hotter climate. 
Cy Robertson, Nate's brother, is focusing on the fields that grow grain for the cows. The fungi and the microbes and even like the in- insects and worms that are growing in the soil, um, they do a lot of good for feeding the crops. About five years ago, the farm got some money from the USDA to help transition to no-till farming, meaning they don't turn over the soil before planting in it. And they check in regularly with experts from the University of New Hampshire. Jamie Robertson, Cy and Nate's father, says all of these changes have sometimes been tough to watch. The farm has been in his wife's family since 1907. And he says with the no-till system, the fields in spring look like a messy house. One of the things I do miss is that a nice tilled field, when that corn first starts coming up, you know, you hear popping up in rows, and it's just these ribbons of little green rows for acres. But Jamie and his sons see how the fields are healthier now. Corn that never grew well in the past is thriving. Anthony Munene says farmers at Fresh Start are also seeing that the plants grown on the climate demonstration farm are performing better. And the farmers themselves have realized that to mitigate the climate change, yes, it's very important to approach things different. As wetter weather and hotter summers become the norm, Munene is letting other farmers know there's help available and a few changes can make a big difference. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplomazian. We'll have more stories of the regional impact of our changing climate all this week on All Things Considered and on Morning Edition on WBUR. You can also check out the stories at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. And New Arts Center in Newton, arts education for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this fall at newartcenter.org. The latest on Hurricane Idalia as it closes in on Florida, coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Still kind of humid out there. Showers, even some pelting rain moving in overnight tonight. Temperatures about 67 at the lowest. Tomorrow should bring more rain during the first part of the day anyway. Maybe some thunder. Then slowly sunshine burns through tomorrow. Temperatures about 78 degrees for a high. Sunshine should be here to stay for Thursday and maybe even a few more days after that. In the Boston area, 74 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.50. A monthly subscription can buy you everything from TV to coffee beans. That is typically convenient, but I go on vacation and I have coffee piling up on my doorstep. Are you accidentally spending money on stuff you don't want anymore? That's on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. By almost any standard, Alice Carrier had an extraordinary childhood. She's the daughter of Jennifer Bartlett, an internationally renowned artist who also happened to be an emotionally distant mother. Her father is a popular German actor, Mathieu Carrier, who exhibited inappropriate behavior during Alice Carrier's childhood. We want to warn you that we will be discussing that part of her life later on in this conversation. As Carriere entered her teen years, her brain started to splinter into a dissociative disorder. I couldn't recognize my own face in the mirror. I had no connection to my feelings, my body, my history. I was convinced I didn't exist. I would write to keep myself from getting completely lost, and it was my one tether 
to myself and to reality. All that writing has led to this moment, a new memoir called Everything, Nothing, Someone. I was curious about how she could trust her memories from a time when her mental illness was so consuming. Doubt is so intrinsic to the dissociative experience. Right. So that doubt often feels realer than anything else. The process of doubting is just the process of living for me. And I think it was precisely that doubt that not only splintered and shattered me, but also gave me the capacity to connect in a way that I never thought possible. It gave me the opportunity to listen to my father's story, to humanize my mother in a way that I don't think she ever could, and to recognize the humanity in myself even when I couldn't recognize my own face in the mirror. Hmm. Well, I just want to be upfront. Your, your book raises serious questions about whether your father sexually abused you. When you started writing... How much did you share with him about what you intended to reveal? Well, I was estranged from him for 12 years because he did transgress in many ways. There was an oversharing of information that was often inflected with sexuality, and he put me in dangerous situations. But then I was subjected to a similar indoctrination to what my mother was subjected to an overzealous clinician implanted false memories of ritualized sexual abuse and murder into her. And, and I went to a treatment center where I was told that my father had molested me, that he was a monster, and I should never speak to him again. Mm -hmm. And I didn't speak to him for 12 years. And then after a massive dissociative episode in 2018, that dissolved my entire identity yet again, I needed to rebuild myself from the raw materials of my life. And my mother was suffering from dementia. Mm -hmm. The nanny who raised me was dead. He was the only one left. And I went and I confronted my father and I told him everything. I told him all the ways I felt that he had violated boundaries. And it was an extraordinary reunion that helped me understand how so many things can be true and how to humanize. So I told him everything. You know, your book made me think about how much we are formed by our parents. And all of us who are wrestling with our parents' influence, whether it's through therapy or medication or spirituality, whatever it may be, we believe in the ability to be something different from our parents. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something really optimistic about that. There's something really optimistic about your story because through your struggle – there was hope. Yes, exactly. Even when it was a challenge to, let's say, find the words for what I was experiencing, it was exactly that challenge that kept me from, from getting lost. And I really hope through this book, I can help people who are inside of the dissociative experience articulate it, and I can help those who are outside of the dissociative experience I can help them to understand it. And it's really because of my partner, Gregory, because this book is, is an unlikely love story as well. Yes. And it's because of Gregory that I've really learned that that optimism is even possible. And may I ask, how has this book, if it has, helped you deepen your connection 
to your mom, who who has since passed away, but I imagine you've re-examined and, and re-remembered your whole relationship mm-hmm. with her. So yes, she, she died um, a year ago in July. And it's interesting because when she was diagnosed with dementia, it's obviously an illness that takes a lot away. But in what it removed was a really profound opportunity. And the dementia liberated her from these false implanted memories of ritualized sexual abuse and murder that had made her hide in her work and had kept her away from the people she tried to love. Mm -hmm. And it freed her from this crushing ambition. And that allowed her to just be tender and curious. And then what it did for me was it liberated me of this story that had defined me for so long, which was I was just a mental patient and a screw up. And that allowed me to just be her daughter. And in writing this book, I not only wrote myself into a place of deep, deep, deep empathy for her, but the only advice she ever gave me was just do the work. And just doing the work is how I can emulate her in a way that's not destructive or alienating. And in just doing the work, that's how I continue to stay connected to her. Yeah. When I think about the arc of your relationship with your mother, I'm struck by how much it had meant to you or how much you had desired at one point for her to see you as brilliant and also a great artist in a way, I mean, through writing. You wanted to discuss your work with her, to be her peer. But in the end, you wrote that you became the daughter whose hand she wanted to hold. How does that sit with you? Wow, unexpected turn of events I'm I'm feeling <laughs> on the air. Um, that's very un-Jennifer and un-Alice. Um, but- Give into it. Right. I mean, she was so marked by and also transmitted to me a certain grandiosity. You know, she was as famous for the scale of her work as she was for her ambition. And near the end of her life, and now that I get to share the story with the world, it's an interesting inflection point because I settled for just being seen by her. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for that whittling away. And one of the things I realized in the dementia was that after everything was taken away, everything that had made her who she was, what had stuck was me. And that's really powerful for me. Alice Carrier's new memoir is called Everything, Nothing, Someone. Thank you so much, Alice, for sharing all of this with all of us. Thank you so much, Elsa. I'm having a full out-of-body experience in the best possible way, and I thank you for it. (laughs) You're so welcome. (laughs) You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Policy Genius, an online marketplace committed to modernizing the life insurance industry, agents are able to compare life insurance quotes from multiple companies side by side. 
Learn more at policygenius.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Listen to WBR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBR app now and tap to listen live. Should have some rain moving in tonight for the first part of the day tomorrow as well. And then we could have a sunny rest of the day tomorrow, warming to about 78 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 459. I'm executive editor for News Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Biden administration is trying to tame drug prices and it's starting with 10 medicines that will be subject to price negotiations with Medicare. The drugs include treatments for high blood pressure, diabetes and cancer. It's Tuesday, August 29th and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Hurricane Adalia churns toward Florida's Gulf Coast. People are being evacuated as Adalia's winds reach 90 miles an hour. Three weeks after the deadly wildfires in Maui, a few tourists visiting the island are feeling conflicted. We were kind of scared that, like, we didn't know if it was kind of looked down upon almost for coming here. But Maui's economy relies on tourism, and local officials are now urging vacationers not to stay away. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Residents along South Florida's Gulf Coast are already feeling the effects as Hurricane Idalia approaches. It has just grown to a Category 2 storm. NPR's Debbie Elwood reports it's expected to bring catastrophic storm surge and damaging winds when it strikes Wednesday in Florida's Big Bend region as a major Cat 3 hurricane. Hurricane Idalia is rapidly intensifying, gaining power from the extremely warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Nearly two dozen counties have ordered evacuations in vulnerable communities from northwest Florida to the Tampa Bay region. Governor Ron DeSantis says it's rare for a hurricane to make landfall in the Big Bend. We've not really had a hurricane strike this area uh, for a long, long time. I think you got to go back to the 1800s before you would see a path uh, like this. And so, so those coastal areas there, you know, have not necessarily been through this before. Idalia also poses a threat inland in a region with lots of rivers and creeks that will swell with storm surge. Debbie Elliott. NPR News. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is suspending his campaign for the Republican nomination for president. The announcement comes after Suarez failed to qualify for last week's Republican debate. NPR's Ashley Lopez has more. Francis Suarez didn't make it on stage for the debate because he did not have enough support in the polls. He entered the crowded presidential race about two months ago and, like many other candidates, has failed to gain traction in this crowded field. Suarez, a Miami-born Cuban-American, says in a statement that he will continue to amplify the voices of the Hispanic community in the Republican Party. He says the party needs to do more to attract Hispanic voters. In his statement, the Miami mayor also expressed his commitment to working with the GOP to put forward a strong nominee. He, however, stopped short of committing to support the eventual nominee. 
Ashley Lopez, NPR News. China's top economic official is promising more cooperation with the U.S. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the pledge comes after efforts to limit trade tensions between the world's two biggest economies. China's vice premier says he's ready to make new positive efforts to reduce trade tensions with the U.S. Her Lefeng spoke after meeting with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, who's in Beijing for talks this week. The two countries also agreed to exchange information about the Biden administration's efforts to restrict exports of sensitive technology to China. A computer glitch has temporarily idled more than two dozen Toyota assembly lines in Japan. The automaker is still investigating the cause of the problem, but says production should resume tomorrow. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Consumers appear a bit less confident as summer winds down. The business research group, the Conference Board, says its Consumer Confidence Index fell nearly eight points from July. Notwithstanding that, stocks closed sharply higher today. The Dow rose 292 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new study from Boston University finds that young athletes can also be at risk for the degenerative brain disease known as CTE. A study from the CTE Center finds that more than 40% of contact sport athletes who died young had the disease. Researchers looked at the brains of 152 people who died under the age of 30. Dr. Ann McKee leads the CTE Center. She says the study's findings need to be taken seriously. We need to do a better job of taking head impacts out of these sports, and there's a variety of ways we can do it, but we have to care enough to do it. And I think this study shows that we should care because we need to keep these young athletes safe. The study also included the first American woman athlete who was diagnosed with a disease. Some at Brandeis University are pushing back against the planned elimination of the school's doctoral programs in music. In a letter to faculty, Brandeis attributes the proposed cuts not to financial need, but to the university's decision to lean into the sciences. As WBR's Max Larkin reports, many staff and students say the cuts don't make financial sense. In a statement published Monday, Brandeis's music faculty touted its Ph.D. programs for high job placement rates and low attrition, all while costing less than one-thousandth of the university's overall budget. Marie Camuzzo, a third-year doctoral student in musicology, argues that programs like hers make schools and wider communities complete. I think it should be obvious that what we do matters. Writing new music matters a lot. Concerts matter a lot. A society cannot only survive with engineers and doctors and biologists. The cuts still need the approval of the university's board of trustees. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Governor Moore Healy is asking President Biden to lower flags to half-mast on Thursday in recognition of International Overdose Awareness Day. She says that would allow Massachusetts to also lower its flags to call attention to the overdose crisis and break down the stigma that she says prevents people from seeking treatment. Massachusetts lost more than 2,300 people to overdoses last year alone. 74 degrees now overnight tonight, cloudy skies, a few showers, temperatures in the mid-60s. And then for tomorrow, waking up to clouds, more rain, but eventually we should see the sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures about 78 degrees. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. If you're a senior and you're taking popular blood thinners or diabetes medications, there is a big battle brewing over the prices for the drugs in your medicine cabinet. For the first time, the government is set to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies over how much they charge Medicare. President Biden says Medicare has been paying too much based on what other governments pay. And now drug companies are fighting against the new move in court. We're going to see this through. We're going to keep standing up the big pharma and we're not going to back down. Here to walk us through those battle lines, I'm joined now by NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin and at the White House, NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Hi, y'all. Hey. Hi. So, Sydney, let's start with you. Which drugs are up for negotiation and exactly how much money are we talking about here? Yeah, so this is a list of 10 drugs that includes blood thinners, Eliquis, and Xarelto, plus drugs that treat heart failure, diabetes, cancer, and arthritis. Senator Amy Klobuchar said this morning on Morning Edition that the administration was really going after blockbusters. But these drugs also had to meet a pretty detailed set of rules to be up for negotiation. For instance, they had to be on the market already for a number of years and have no competing generics or substitutes called biosimilars. So that ruled out some top-selling drugs like Humira, which has been hugely popular and expensive for more than two decades. But a bunch of biosimilar copycats to Humira entered the market just this year, so it wasn't eligible for price negotiations. The drugs that are on the list cost Medicare a total of $50 billion, with a B, dollars last year, plus $3.4 billion in out-of-pocket costs for seniors. So that could all come down. And just to give you an idea of what that might mean for patients, the highest average annual out-of-pocket cost was above $5,000 for patients who need Imbruvica, a cancer drug. And lowering that would be a big help for those patients. Okay, and patients, they are, of course, also voters. So, mm-hmm. Deepa, to you now, what does that mean for President Biden politically? Yeah, I mean, this is a very popular issue across the political spectrum. Wanna polling shows that a majority of Democrats, Republicans, and independent voters all support Medicare being allowed to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs. But actually getting this process to this point has taken years. And other presidents, including former President Donald Trump, have tried to start this process, but they never succeeded. So experts I talked with say that this moment is a big win for Biden. He gets to say, I'm the one who got it done. And that's a message that Biden will take to voters. Talking about lower drug prices is going to be a major talking point for him as he hits the campaign trail and continues to try to spread his economic message. And keep in mind, the high cost of drugs is also an issue that impacts older voters in particular, a group that in the last presidential election, Trump had more support from than Biden. Mm -hmm. And of course, we might be seeing a rematch of sorts between them in 2024. So this is an already popular issue, and it could help Biden gain support from voters he didn't win over last time. Okay, Deepa, I want to stick with the politics here for a second, because President Biden has been trying to sell his economic message to the public, to voters for months, but it hasn't really been clicking with people. So will this announcement that prices on these 10 drugs could be coming down in the future, do you think it's going to resonate differently? Well, that's definitely what the White House is hoping for. I was in the room for President Biden's remarks today, and he was talking to Democratic supporters about how they've been trying to lower the cost of prescription drugs for a long time. But it was interesting because he really spoke about it as part of his larger economic message. This announcement about drug prices, to me, felt less like a singular plan and more so Biden saying, you know, this is one piece 
piece of the puzzle in lowering costs. The problem for Biden, though, as you point out, is that polling shows that voters haven't really been giving him credit for his economic agenda so far, even when his plans are politically popular like this one. And the White House has been saying it'll take time for Biden's plans to work and actually lower costs. And this announcement today falls into that boat, too, because people won't see an immediate reduction in the cost of these drugs. The new prices aren't scheduled to take effect until 2026, which is after the presidential mm-hmm. election. But I talked to one strategist who says that this is still a political win for Biden because voters will know that a specific cost of something they're paying for will be coming down. Here's Jeremy Sharp. He worked on this issue of prescription drug prices in the Obama administration and on Capitol Hill. And so I think they will start to feel this even before the negotiated price goes into effect. But I think they're also smart enough to see that a a negotiated price on a drug that they are taking right now will be meaningful for them in the next year or two. And Sharp says that releasing this list of these 10 drugs makes it more real, more tangible for Medicare beneficiaries and voters. And he thinks they'll give Biden credit for this, even though lower costs aren't really coming immediately. So, Sydney, how is the drug industry responding to all of this news? Yeah, they don't like it and they're pushing back. Basically, they're saying if they can't charge what they want, they won't be able to bring as many new medicines to market. But the Congressional Budget Office estimated that the Inflation Reduction Act as a whole would only have a modest impact on drug development. So out of the 1,300 new drugs expected over the next three decades, it says 13 fewer of them would come to market because of this law. Still, the industry is suing. Here's Professor Robin Feldman at University of California Law. The wailing and gnashing of teeth of the eight lawsuits already filed suggests that the program will have some impact on the dollar flow. Drug makers, the trade group Pharma, and the Chamber of Commerce have all sued the government over this law. Feldman says the cases are probably headed to the Supreme Court. All right, Sydney, in the 30 seconds or so we've got left, sum up what comes next here. A lot has to happen before Medicare beneficiaries see lower prices on these drugs. The companies making them, you know, have until October to agree to negotiate. Um, The back and forth will probably go until next August. So the negotiated prices would be announced about a year from now when election season is in full swing and they take effect January 1st, 2026. All right. We'll hear more from you soon. NPR's Deepa Shivaram and Sydney Lubkin. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. After the deadly wildfires on Maui, tourists were turned away, trips were canceled, and now, three weeks after the fires, scores of flights to the island have been suspended. The planes that are landing are still mostly empty apart from aid workers and journalists. Local businesses and state tourism officials are now making desperate pleas for tourists to return. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. On the Blue Bus Show on Manaho Community Radio, local DJ Forrest has a pitch for listeners streaming from outside the Hawaiian Islands. Another way you can support Maui, come here. Despite what you see on the news about the tragedy right in Lahaina, he continues, the rest of the island is open. 730 square miles of beauty isn't burned. The Maui economy relies on tourism. To stay away now will just make the problem worse. This is a refrain you're hearing now a lot across the island. Maui typically gets upwards of 3 million visitors a year. Last year, tourists spent more than $5.5 billion here.
Locals are throwing birthday parties along this beach an hour away from the burn zone. Things feel almost normal. Kids jump and swim in the waves just a few feet from two giant Hawaiian green sea turtles. The few tourists who are here still feel a little conflicted. We were kind of scared that like, we didn't know if it was kind of like looked down upon almost for coming here. Kennedy Sirota and a friend are visiting from Canada. Hawaii was a bucket list trip after graduating from university. Sirota says they decided to come to Maui after reading a post from a nearby surf hostel. It called on tourists to return. We were a little hesitant. We still are, but now talking to more people, uh, we know that we wanted to be here. We hope that more people come as well. Many longtime locals are also still feeling conflicted. At first, it was unimaginable that anyone would or should vacation around Lahaina. To get to all the resorts and golf courses on the west side of Maui, you have to drive through the destruction. Bully Cotter lost everything in the fire. You know, stay out of Lahaina. This isn't a sightseeing place right now. This place is devastated, and it's, I feel fully ins- not very sensitive to think about all these people and the trauma that they've gone through. But Cotter's lived here for almost 60 years. He runs a surf school, the rest of his family works at resort hotels, and most of them are closed. I'm conflicted because there's people, they've got three months of savings. What are they gonna do? There's gonna be a mass exodus of people leaving here. A mass exodus is always a big concern after such a huge disaster. But the stakes here may be higher than most, considering almost the entire island is dependent on tourism. There was already a labor and housing shortage before the fires. The Hawaii Tourism Authority estimates that West Maui has been losing more than a million dollars a day since August 8th. We uh, we had a few families evacuate up here into this neighborhood. Snay Patel is doing all he can to keep businesses afloat. He manages vacation rentals in the resorts around Lahaina. One property that he owns was also destroyed. But his seaside neighborhood that he's looking out on from his second story balcony is untouched. Initially saying that, you know, all of Maui was closed, I don't know if that was the right message because it's hard to bring that those individuals back. And when you look at the media coverage, it is just, you know, looping um, the devastation. Patel leads the Lahaina Town Action Committee. It's a group of 110 local businesses, almost all of them burned down. He's organizing meetings this week with federal officials and relief agencies. He hopes that this area along the coast north of town can be reopened by mid-October. That's when the governor's initial disaster declaration runs out. I think that the messaging um, can shift in some capacity to come you know, and visit responsibly. Don't stop where the impact site is, go directly to your resort, stay around the beaches that are right at the resort. But some of Patel's longtime guests are telling him, for now anyway, they just don't want to come and celebrate big milestones or take a vacation, not when their favorite place is suffering from so much tragedy. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Maui. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR, a big upswing today on Wall Street. The Dow rose more than eight-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly one-and-a-half percent, and the Nasdaq grew by one-and-three-quarters percent as tech stocks rebounded after a slow start to the month. It's 519. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village with Baskerville, a Sherlock Holmes mystery based on Arthur Conan Doyle's classic novel. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. A Lowell-based nonprofit business accelerator is expanding to three more states. Entrepreneurship for All will launch a virtual program in California, Texas, and Arizona. The company offers business training and mentorship to help traditionally underrepresented people start and grow their businesses. This is WBUR. The forecast is on the way. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Fall semester starts September 18th. SemesterOff.com. It's the Red Sox and Houston Astros again at Fenway Park in a few hours. Tonight's pitching lineup is the same as it was last Thursday in Houston. The Sox will go with Brian Bayo. The Astros will tap J.P. France, 7:10 start time at Fenway. In the forecast, look for lots of clouds around tonight. Some showers later on, maybe some heavy rains. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Rain could last through tomorrow morning before clouds gradually make an exit and the sunshine enters. Should be a nice afternoon tomorrow, right about 78 degrees, and could be sunny on Thursday as well. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hurricane Idalia is on track to hit Florida's Big Bend region tomorrow, and it could bring up to 15 feet of storm surge. That's the wall of ocean water that hurricanes push onto the land. It can be deadly, and climate change is making storms with powerful storm surge more likely. As NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports, improved computer models now let people see maps showing how much surge is forecast when storms are headed their way. It's hard to overstate how dangerous storm surge can be. The water is so powerful it can tear entire homes from their foundations. It's the reason for most evacuation orders. But people don't always have enough time to evacuate. Cody Fritz leads the storm surge unit at the National Hurricane Center in Miami. In years prior, we might have been able to predict those extreme events about two days in advance. That is not very long. Imagine needing to pack your things, board up your windows, find a place to go, all in 48 hours or less. The real improvement in this model um, is to kind of increase that, that lead time beyond two days to almost, say, three days. A whole extra day to evacuate. This is quite a big upgrade. In addition to giving more lead time, forecasters will also have better information about how far inland the water will go. That's because they've added details about plants, trees and wetlands and other vegetation along the coast. And that helps to slow the water down and reduce how far inland it can actually penetrate. So with plant information in the mix, the storm surge forecasts will be more accurate. But arguably the largest upgrade is about which Americans get storm surge forecasts at all. 
Up until now, there was virtually no real-time storm surge forecasting for the territories of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, even though they're extremely threatened by hurricanes. Entire neighborhoods have been swept away. Hurricane Irma plowing through the Caribbean with 185-mile-per-hour winds, leaving a wake of destruction in her path. A few weeks after Irma, Hurricane Maria brought up to 10 feet of storm surge to Puerto Rico. All that moving water also causes dangerous pollution. Ingrid Padilla studies water contamination at the University of Puerto Rico. She says there are dangerous chemicals, heavy metals, and other pollution hiding in plain sight in coastal areas, in landfills, factories, farms. When you have flooding, those contaminants could be picked up by the water. The pollution can get into the water supply. Bacteria in drinking water can make people sick. You start seeing people having GI problems very fast. That happened after Hurricane Maria. Many people in Puerto Rico were cut off from reliable drinking water for weeks, if not months. And people got sick or even died of illnesses that were caused or exacerbated by contamination. Padilla says protecting people from pollution goes way beyond what a hurricane forecast can accomplish on its own. But better storm surge forecasts could help keep people safer. My sense is that it will definitely help on the spot to make very quick decisions. Like evacuation orders or warning residents when drinking water is contaminated. So why didn't Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands get these forecasts earlier? Fritz from the National Hurricane Center says predicting how water will interact with the coastline of a small island requires more complex computer models than for the mainland. It can take quite a long time to run um, and many computers to kind of simulate that event. But when a hurricane is headed for land, you need to be able to update and warn people every few hours. We don't have a lot of time. Now, they've figured out how to run the models in an hour or less. It took years and a team of about half a dozen people. Hurricane season runs through the end of November. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Although we are in the 2024 campaign cycle, two milestones this week got us looking back to the presidential campaign of 2008, when Senator Barack Obama first won the White House. The first milestone involves a viral moment. Well, the reason why I ask you about the American dream, I mean, I've worked hard. I'm a plumber. You know, I work, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. That's Samuel Joseph Wurzelbacher, who became known as Joe the Plumber after that exchange with then-candidate Barack Obama. He personified working-class America on the campaign trail. Joe the Plumber died this week from pancreatic cancer. He was 49. His legacy showed the power people have in politics, something NPR's Don Gagne saw firsthand as he covered the 2008 campaign. Hey, Don. Hey there. What are your memories of that moment and, and what it meant at the time? You, you cover a campaign, you know what it's like, Ari. Yeah. It, it just becomes so much a part of you. And these things, these moments take up residence in the nooks and crannies of your memory, uh, including, in this case, Joe the plumber. He was an unknown. It was in Toledo, Ohio. He told Obama he wanted to buy the plumbing company he worked for. But he became an instant stand-in for working-class Americans terrified over the state of the economy and the financial crisis. It was one of those moments that just happens out of the blue. Then, just days later, there was a presidential debate with GOP nominee John McCain repeatedly attacking Obama by citing Joe the plumber. Why would you want to increase anybody's taxes right now? Why would you want to do that? Anyone, anyone in America. 
when we have such a tough time, when these small business people like Joe the plumber are going to create jobs unless you take that money from him and spread the wealth around. And within days, Ari, Joe the plumber was out on the campaign trail with McCain trumpeting an anti-tax message. Which sounds so much like what we went on to see with the Tea Party movement, the same sorts of complaints about taxes and government. But at that moment in 2008, no one had yet heard of the Tea Party. Right. It would rise up as a force in the first two years of Obama's presidency uh, when, when Tea Party candidates ran for Congress and for local offices in the 2010 midterms. But it is not a stretch at all to say that Joe the Plumber gave us a preview of all of that that would play out two years, uh, two years later. All right. Well, I said at the top that there were two milestones reminding us of 2008. And the other one is that this was the day most Americans heard the name Sarah Palin for the first time. This was the day the Republican nominee, John McCain, named her as his running mate. I was on an Obama campaign bus when that news broke. Uh, this was before we had smartphones. We knew she was Alaska's governor, but not much more about her. And I remember her name being pronounced mostly incorrectly on mm. the bus. Palin, people were saying. So she just came out of the blue. And I've often thought about how her instant celebrity, her sassiness, her often fraught relationship with the truth previewed what would hit with even greater political force in Donald Trump eight years later. And I should also add that Palin was there before Trump in how she viewed the journalists who covered her. Uh, we were, quote, the lamestream media. Here's a sample. But this BS coming from the lamestream media lately about this. Don't let, don't let the conversation be diverted. Don't let so, Don, what do you make of the fact that today neither Palin nor the Tea Party is prominent in American politics? Uh, you can see that the dots from back then formed a path that eventually got us to Trump and his MAGA movement. A lot of the same players overlap. But again, in 2008, there was Joe the Plumber and there was Sarah Palin. And NPR's Don Gagne was there. Thanks, Don. Thank you. This is NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, author Jennifer Weiner's new book features a main character who is plus-sized and likes the way she looks. I always wanted stories where the fat girl wasn't the funny best friend and didn't have to lose 100 pounds before she got the guy. Our conversation with Weiner coming up. Tickets are now on sale for the MBTA's special event train to the Patriots homeowner opener, that is, September 10th. They're half the price they were last year. Round-trip tickets on the commuter rail are $10. Trains leave from South Station and Providence Station with some stops in between. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Closes September 4th, icaboston.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. 
A monthly subscription can buy you everything from TV to coffee beans. That is typically convenient, but I go on vacation and I have coffee piling up on my doorstep. Are you accidentally spending money on stuff you don't want anymore? That's on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Millions of people along the uh, Florida's Gulf Coast are bracing for the first major hurricane of the season tomorrow. Forecasters there say Hurricane Idalia is expected to rapidly intensify as it moves across the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico on track to hit Florida's Big Bend region with storm surge that could reach 15 feet. Governor Ron DeSantis says... Residents should leave now because authorities anticipate major power outages once the storm makes landfall. You are going to lose power if you're in the path of this storm. You should assume that that's going to happen. And the goal is going to be uh, rapid restoration uh, of power. There's going to be a lot of power lines down. Uh, Just expect that. The storm is a threat from the Florida panhandle to the Tampa Bay region as the state continues to recover from damage leveled by Hurricane Ian last year. Meanwhile, officials have also issued evacuation orders for parts of Georgia and South Carolina, both under storm advisories. California's attorney general has sued a school district here in Southern California to stop its policy to notify parents if a student identifies as transgender or gender nonconforming at school from member station KVCR. Madison Ahmet reports. The policy approved by the Chino Valley School Board requires school employees to contact parents if a student self-identifies as a gender other than what's listed on their birth certificate. California Attorney General Rob Bonta says the new rule is, quote, forced outing. This policy has managed to violate multiple constitutional rights of our students, multiple statutory rights of our students, their right to privacy, their right to equal protection, their right to be free from discrimination. It tramples on students' rights. Meanwhile, supporters of transgender notification policies say parents have a right to know. A handful of school boards in California have adopted or plan to adopt such policies. You are listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is doing away with gender markers on city marriage certificates. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more on the announcement today. The city's director of policy and strategic initiatives, Kimberly Roden, received the city's first marriage certificate without gender markers. They married their partner on June 10th. They say the policy change better reflects people in the LGBTQ community. A marriage certificate is a symbol of love and commitment, but unfortunately for people like me, the certificate's outdated and narrow gender markers were a glaring reminder that our city still had a long way to go to acknowledging our existence. The city is also creating more gender-aware guidelines for city services. They include updating when to ask people about their gender identity and pronouns. There's also new guidance on how gender data should be collected when it's necessary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. A forklift operator at Logan Airport has suffered life-threatening injuries after an incident earlier today. Massachusetts State Police say it happened about 3.30 this afternoon in a loading area outside Terminal C, where there's no public access. Police say part of the forklift hit a stationary structure and caused the lift to flip over on top of the victim. He's been taken to Boston Medical Center. 
the forklift operator works for, a subcontractor of JetBlue. Officials in Lemonster are fighting to keep open the only maternity ward in the city. UMass Medical plans to close the birthing center next month. Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella is asking the Department of Public Health to reject the plans. He says Greater Lemonster has more than 100,000 residents and there is no ready way to send expectant mothers to Worcester or Gardner for care. In a lot of cases, there is no plan to transport people. There, there are no signed contracts with transportation companies. There are no signed contracts with ambulance services to transport uh, those that may need ambulance service. It just, then it just comes back to the local communities, and we're already stretched. A lawyer for UMass Medical has said that it, to, to maintain its current service, the hospital would need to recruit more nurses, OBGYNs, and others, but there aren't enough births locally to support the hiring. New England Patriots have waived backup quarterback Bailey Zappi. The 24-year-old was the third-string quarterback on the team last season. The team has also cut quarterback Malik Cunningham today, leaving Mac Jones as the only quarterback currently on the Patriots roster. Today was the day NFL teams had to trim their rosters to the league maximum 53 players. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Lesley University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at lesley.edu. Some thunderstorms likely tonight, temperatures about the mid-60s, and then for tomorrow, you may need the umbrella tomorrow morning as we get the last of the rain for a while. You may be able to put it away for the afternoon, though, as sunshine moves in. 74 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Jennifer Weiner's books have become synonymous with sand in your toes, a beach breeze, and a bright blue ocean, both in the content and the experience of reading them. Her newest novel, The Breakaway, trades the beach for New York's Empire Trail, and the heroine is spending her days on a bike. But the themes Weiner has committed to throughout all her novels are still very much there. The Breakaway, like Weiner's books before it, explores how a woman's relationship with her body, how a woman lives in her body, is influenced by society's rules and expectations. Jennifer Weiner joins me now. Welcome. Hey. First of all, I should just say, I loved this book. I think I started and finished the whole thing in a day. And reading it, I started wondering... Are you a biker? Yes. Yes, I am a biker. I shove myself into that lycra. I look like a hot pink sausage. I get on my bike and I go. Yes. What do you love about it? Um, So much like Abby, who is the protagonist of The Breakaway, I grew up in a suburb. I learned to ride as a kid. And that was my freedom. That was my independence. I should just say before we get into this conversation that I am nothing like Abby. I just bought my first bike as an adult a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yay. Good for you. Yay. I'm trying my best. I think my childhood experience was confined to a couple loops around a cul-de-sac, so certainly not taking myself much of anywhere. But Jennifer, I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about Abby. 
Okay, so Abby Stern is the lead character of The Breakaway. She is a plus-size woman who is more or less living happily in her body or trying very hard to. She has sort of the classic almond mom who monitored every bite of food she put in her mouth, um, sent Abby to fat camp when Abby wanted to go to drama camp, and has um, maintained a, a certain degree of influence as Abby has grown up. And I mean, in the story, you've managed to weave in so many things, both in terms of the moment we find ourselves in in this country surrounding reproductive rights, the post-pandemic or new wave of the pandemic, but you also dig really deep into the relationships between moms and daughters and the weight of expectations. And there are two mother-daughter relationships that are really central to the story. And I wonder if you can just start by telling us a little bit about Abby's relationship with her mother, Eileen, who ends up cycling along with her on this tour that Abby's leading. Yes. Okay. So Abby gets a chance to lead this bike tour along the Empire State Trail, which runs from New York City all the way up to Niagara Falls. And then much to her shock and dismay, her mom shows up on this trip and says, honey, I just want to spend time with you, which is not what Abby wants at all, <laughs> especially because um, another surprise participant on this trip is this this guy she spent this like one hot night with many years ago and never thought she'd see again. And there he is. So we've got the two of them with all of this really fraught history about food, about body, about expectations, about how does a woman live happily in the world and what's going to give her the most choices, the most options. And choices and options are a big theme that moves through the breakaway and has a lot to do with our second mother-daughter pair, which is Morgan and Lily. And um, Lily is an evangelical Christian um, from the Midwest, and her daughter Morgan is a teenager who is pregnant in post-Dobbs America and does not want to be and is desperate to find a way out of this situation without letting her mother know and she thinks breaking her mother's heart. I mean, thinking about the character of Abby for a second, the thing about her that I was drawn to is the fact that she is happy with her body. She's at peace with her fatness. She is confident in her athleticism, her ability to cycle. And you, from her vantage point, write about fatness in such a positive way, both in terms of her internal dialogue and the way that her body and her size do not become a wedge in her romantic relationships. Can you talk about how you wrote about that? Yeah. Okay. So there's there's a famous quote from Toni Morrison, and she said, if there's a book you need to read and you can't find it on the shelf, it is your job to write that book. And I took that very seriously. As a larger woman, I always wanted stories where the fat girl wasn't the funny best friend, wasn't the butt of the jokes, mm -hmm. and didn't have to lose 100 pounds before she got the guy and the happy ending. I wanted to write about the women I was seeing in the world who were fat and strong and beautiful and powerful and had great jobs and loving relationships because those were the books I needed when I was 14 and 15 and 16 years old. And those are the books I want my daughter's generation to have, the books that say that your happy ending is not contingent on your dress size. I don't want to get too personal, but you've mentioned that you're a mom of daughters. So I, I do want to ask you throughout your 
books and particularly this one, you have been such a strong voice for body positivity and women's rights and living exactly as you are on your own terms. Do you ever find yourself vulnerable to the sorts of pressures that we see the mothers in this book experiencing in your own parenting? I think that any woman who lives in the world and has her eyes open and takes in media and social media, like you can't help sometimes falling prey to it. And I've got days where I sort of look at myself in my biking shorts and biking shorts do not flatter anybody. But still, still, I'm just like, oh, God, like, really, really, you know, and it's just it's, it's a question of like, what do I as a novelist do with that information? And I guess my answer has always been like, let's push back on it. Let's show that there are possibilities for women that do not involve weight loss as as an avenue to happiness. Yeah. I mean, the other revelation is that each of these women, they learn a secret about their moms that changes really everything that they Mm -hmm. thought they knew about them and the way in which they walk through the world. I mean, what were you trying to say about that relationship and the way that outside forces pressure women to act in a certain way to choose certain things? The rise of the almond mom, that was something that sort of has happened in the last couple of years where everybody on social media is talking about these mothers who count out how many almonds they're going to have for a snack, right? And they eyeball everything their daughters eat and, you know, lots of judgment about the almond moms. But then there was sort of a pushback and people were saying, hey, let's remember these almond moms came from somewhere. Like they probably had slim fast moms who, Mm -hmm. you know, made them feel all kinds of ways about their bodies. And I guess that's what I was thinking about is sort of um, why are they the way they are? Like what has happened to them? What have they seen? What have they done? What have they survived that shaped them? And I think – Every woman has seen something, survived something, internalized something that maybe makes her act the way she does toward her daughters, where her daughter is just taking this as like, you know, this is this is judgment or this is somebody who's who's rigid, somebody who just doesn't understand, someone who doesn't see what I'm going through. And the truth is, these moms, they have been through it themselves. Hmm. Jennifer Weiner is a novelist and columnist. Her newest novel, The Breakaway is out today. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. For a period of more than a dozen years in the 60s and 70s, a unique kind of whale hunter operated in the United States. Orca hunters captured and sold whales to aquariums, primarily from the Puget Sound in the Pacific Northwest. Eventually, the practice became illegal, and the last of these southern resident orcas, known by her stage name Lolita, died earlier this month in an aquarium in Miami. Many of the Lummi Nation in Washington State considered her family. From member station KNKX, Bellamy Palethorpe reports. Hundreds of people gathered over the weekend at a beachside park on San Juan Island for a celebration of the orca's life. They burned sweet grass, laid flowers and feathers, artwork and signs around a big, colorful carving of her. One of the artists, Lummi carver Doug James, shared a whale song for healing. The event was originally planned as a dedication ceremony for the story pole. 
but after her unexpected death, it became a kind of memorial. Part of the ceremony included recordings of what is thought to be some of the orca's last calls from her tank. Those calls brought tears to the eyes of many gathered on the beach, still processing the shock of her death. I mean, the last time we got an update, uh, she was coming home, and there were plans for, for that to take place. Tony Hilaire is chairman of Lummi Nation. The tribe called her by the name Scully Chuktanut. Until recently, they were calling for her release into a net pen sanctuary. Hilaire explains that the tribe's teachings say orcas are their relations under the sea. That they are our elders, they are the ones who guide us, they're the ones who teach us how to navigate these waters, how to fish and hunt and uh, live this way of life. He says now Scully Chuktanut's spirit is free and people can take comfort in knowing that soon her cremated remains will be brought home by Lummi elders. But the day after she died, the dolphin company who owned her sent her body out for a necropsy. The tribe says they weren't consulted. Like any family member, you know, we want to be talked to uh, when decisions like that are made. He says they view her as a lost relation. She survived in a tiny tank for more than 50 years after being trapped with underwater bombs and nets and taken from her family when she was just four years old. He says there's still many unanswered questions about how and why she died. So we're trying to find balance between you know, finding those answers as, as well as um, uh, making sure that there's a better process moving forward. Scully Chuktanut's whale family is what scientists call the L-pod. Biologist Deborah Giles was out on the water with them the day that she died. Giles says they were unusually social, vocalizing above the water with lots of breaching. Some thought this orca family somehow sensed that her spirit had been released. You know, I like to think about what other people have said, that they, that they envisioned that she came back and that she was swimming with them. Giles started following the efforts to bring Scully Chuktanut home nearly four decades ago when she was just 16 years old. She says these spiritual theories are comforting at a time of great loss. You know, I, I, my brain doesn't really go there very easily, but I would like to, you know, it's like a waking dream. It's not just this one whale she's grieving. This species of orca is endangered, with a dwindling food supply of salmon and other environmental hazards. There are only 73 of them left in the whole world. Giles warns, unless something drastic changes, these whales could soon go extinct. For NPR News, I'm Bellamy Palethorpe in the San Juan Islands. This is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Hurricane Adalia is taking aim at the Gulf Coast of Florida with some winds topping 100 miles an hour, heavy rain, and a huge storm surge. Listen to WBUR tonight and again tomorrow morning for updates on the storm damage and the evacuation efforts. Listen to WBUR, in fact, anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Could have some thunderstorms overnight tonight, maybe some soaking rains, temperatures in the mid-60s at the lowest. For tomorrow, could get some rain in the morning, but then it should pull out by the afternoon. Could have some sunshine tomorrow, warming to the upper 70s. 74 degrees now in Boston at 549. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Release Wellbeing Center in Boston and Westboro. Experience their massages, facials, cold plunge tubs, steam rooms, and more during their membership drive September 8th to 10th. Yes, it's scary. It can cause destruction and loss of life, and there's reasons to be scared of it, but fire is not bad or good. It just is. But people make choices about where to live and how to rebuild after a fire. More than ever, communities are asking how to rebuild with resilience after your world has burned down. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Louisiana's largest wildfire ever recorded is still burning a week after it started near the Texas border. The state's in a severe drought and continues to experience record heat. Aubrey Uhas is covering this from member station WWNO in New Orleans. Hi, Aubrey. Hey, Ari. What's Louisiana's wildfire season been like this year? Yeah, it's been unusually active. Fires aren't unheard of here, but they're definitely not the first thing that comes up when you talk about natural disasters. That's hurricanes, obviously. But right now, the state is averaging more than 20 wildfires a day. Most of those are on the smaller side, but a large blaze started, as you said, about a week ago near the Texas border. That fire, which is burning in and around Beauregard Parish, has already consumed more than 30,000 acres. That's almost double the amount of land that burned in total last year. The area is heavily forested with a few small towns. Some had to be evacuated, but those orders have since been lifted. About 20 structures, including some homes, have been damaged or destroyed. And nearly a third of the state's parishes have declared states of emergency due to wildfires and a statewide burn ban is in place. Hmm. What is the state of that largest fire in Beauregard Parish right now? Yeah, it's died down in recent days thanks to a little bit of rain, but it's still very much active and could flare back up again. All it takes is a gust of wind. Officials out there say they're really approaching this firefight from a long-term perspective, and that's because it's been so dry for so long that they state the state is essentially a tinderbox, and it's really hard to put out a large fire like this without a significant amount of rain. My colleague Adam Voss spoke with Mark Strain, the state's commissioner of agriculture and forestry, about this. Just go outside and walk on the grass. You know, it crunches under your feet, and so any type of fire, lightning when it hits, normally is absorbed into the earth, and doesn't spread. Now when it hits, it lights a huge fire. Strain says lightning's just one cause of the fires. He says most can probably be traced back to human negligence, things like debris and electrical fires, cooking outside, or even a cigarette butt. Louisiana's called in resources from other states and the federal government because it's just not in a position to fight this many fires of this magnitude on its own. There have been no fatalities from the largest fire, but at least two deaths have been attributed to smaller fires in other parts of the state. We know, broadly speaking, that humid-driven climate change is making wildfires more intense and frequent. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of how that is affecting the fires this summer? Yeah, I called up Barry Keim, the state's climatologist, to ask him about this. And he says while climate change is playing a role, he doesn't expect every summer to be like this going forward. He told me Louisiana has always been a place of climate extremes. And he pointed to a few examples. We've had record-breaking floods. Now we're in a drought. A few years ago, we had an unbelievably active hurricane season. And last year, not a single storm made landfall. But he says climate change does play a role, and he pointed to some other factors, too, including this dome of high pressure that's been sitting over the south-central U.S. all summer long. That's prevented clouds from forming and Louisiana from getting much-needed rain. Oddly enough, the one thing that we can actually probably use after this extraordinarily hot and dry summer is a very weak, and I emphasize the very weak tropical system to come on in here 
and just give us a good soak. He says it'll probably take more than just one good soak, but several to get us back to a safe place. And with Hurricane Adalia steering clear of us, for parts of the state, that may not happen anytime soon. That's Aubrey Uhas of member station WWNO in New Orleans. Thank you. My pleasure. A court in Saudi Arabia has sentenced a man to death over his criticism of that country's leadership. Saudi activists say his tweets and retweets were presented as evidence of his so-called crimes of insulting the king or the crown prince and supporting a terrorist ideology. NPR's Ayaba Trawi reports. Mohammed Al-Ghamdi is a father of seven and a retired teacher who ran two anonymous accounts on the site formerly known as Twitter before he was jailed last year. Human Rights Watch says the accounts had just 10 followers in total and that he mostly retweeted posts by others critical of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Activists say the recent death sentence issued by Saudi Arabia's specialized criminal court against Al-Ghamdi is the harshest amid a wave of verdicts against Saudis for dissent online. Prison terms have ranged from 20 to 45 years in other cases. Lina Al-Hadlouz is a Saudi human rights activist living in exile in Europe. Well, I think the message is clear. is um, You are not safe whatever you do, whoever you are, and you have to just muzzle yourself. Saudi authorities haven't commented publicly on the case. Al-Ghamdi's older brother, Saeed, believes the case is actually aimed at pressuring him. An outspoken Islamic scholar and government critic who runs a human rights group called Sanad in the UK. He says he has resisted efforts by Saudi authorities to lure him back to Saudi Arabia, where he believes he'd be silenced. Ayal Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. Those who love a beautiful night sky and a famous idiom have reason to celebrate this week will be treated to a display that only happens once in a blue moon. A blue moon is the rare second full moon in a month. And this blue moon comes with a bonus. The Earth's lunar sidekick will appear especially big and bright as it reaches its fullest phase on Wednesday, making it a blue supermoon. NPR's Emily Olson explains. You might not guess it, just going off the name, but a supermoon alone isn't really that rare. Well, the moon goes around the Earth in a rather oval-shaped orbit. When the full moon occurs, when the moon is closest to the Earth, they call it a supermoon. That's Dave Teske. He's a coordinator with the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. He says that supermoons happen about two to four times each year, but it's only once every two years or so that we get two full moons in a single month. We call that second full moon a blue moon. And when you have them at the same time, it's a blue supermoon. The last time we had a blue supermoon was in 2009, and we won't see another one again until 2037. So moon lovers won't want to miss it, even if it only looks a little different to the naked eye. Supermoons can be about 17% larger than a normal full moon and 30% brighter. That's NASA research scientist Noah Petro. He says that 9.36 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday night is when the moon will be at its absolute fullest and closest, about 220,000 miles away from Earth. But if you can't see it right then, or if clouds get in the way, you can still catch a very bright and full moon up until Friday. And the astronomers say that even if you can't see it perfectly, the lunar show can still give you a sense of awe just because it connects you with other sky watchers all over the world. It's one thing that is shared by every sighted person on the planet. Whether you're in the Central African Republic or you're in Indonesia or you're in 
an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The moon is something that everyone has an opportunity to look at and is shared. But if you really want to check out the peaks and shadows of a lunar surface, you might want to dust off that telescope or binoculars, or maybe head to a dark spot free of trees and tall buildings. Emily Olson, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Could get some real downpours overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, the rain clouds should finally exhaust themselves, and showers and thunderstorms should come in the morning, but then leave by the afternoon with sunshine taking over. Should nudge about 80 degrees. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Officials in Florida are warning residents of the Gulf Coast that Hurricane Idalia is taking aim for them and time to evacuate is running short. Understand that Mother Nature wins every time. So if you have the opportunity to evacuate and you can, please do. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the administration's landmark plan to lower the price of 10 prescription drugs under Medicare. As climate challenges mount, two farms in New Hampshire are working to become more climate resilient by better managing water and heat. We'll pay them a visit. And a fan at an Adele concert stood, sang, and filmed himself during the show, even though many of the people in his section were seated. Security got involved, and Adele even weighed in from the stage. It's 6.01, news headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Residents of north-central Florida are making preparations for Hurricane Idalia. It's now grown to a Category 2 storm with winds of 100 miles an hour. 
Hurricane is expected to make landfall off the Gulf of Mexico. Ailey Shanes of member station WUFT reports on how one coastal town is bracing for impact. Prepare for the worst and pray for the best is the mantra of those in Steenhatchee, a riverside town that meets the Gulf just north of Cedar Key, is expected to get major storm surge. Jody Griffiths is part owner of Steenhatchee Marina. We're expecting a 27 and a 13 foot storm surge, so there's no no telling. I don't think we've ever encountered this particular territory before, so uh, ultimately uh, we're hoping that we back down the hatch is good enough and uh, we'll see what happens come tomorrow morning. Emergency management is urging residents to evacuate. Griffith says he knows some who have fled on their boats to safer waters, but others with no place to go have decided to stay. For NPR News, I'm Ailey Shanes in Steenhatchee, Florida. The popular diabetes treatment Jardians and the blood thinner Eliquis are on the list of 10 widely used drugs targeted for price negotiations by the federal government. The end result is expected to be lower prices, though a major pharmaceuticals lobby group is already waiting against the move. More from NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. The Inflation Reduction Act gave the federal government the power to negotiate the price of certain drugs for Medicare. These 10 drugs will be the first prescriptions subject to those negotiations. Amit Serpatori is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. He says the pharmaceutical industry is working hard to tie this policy up with lawsuits and ad campaigns and lobbying. He says this list of initial drugs it is really the bell for the first round. I mean, this is going to be a, a heavyweight battle. The new prices that the federal government will eventually negotiate for these prescription drugs will go into effect in 2026. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Stocks closed higher today amid signs the job market is cooling. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose nearly 300 points. A report from the Labor Department shows job openings fell last month to their lowest level in more than two years. While there are still three vacant jobs for every two unemployed people, demand for workers has been easing. The number of people quitting jobs was also down last month. With less job turnover, there should be less upward pressure on wages. That's likely to be reassuring. Assuring to the Federal Reserve, investors are increasingly confident the Fed will leave interest rates unchanged next month. Stock in 3M rose by more than one and a third percent after the company agreed to settle complaints brought by service members who say they suffered hearing loss after using 3M earplugs in combat. The $6 billion settlement is smaller than some analysts had expected. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Nasdaq was up 238 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is confirming the first two human cases of West Nile virus this year. One case is a woman in her 70s who contracted the virus in another part of the country. The other is a man in his 40s who was exposed in Middlesex County. Symptoms of the virus can include fever and flu-like illness. Officials say use bug repellents to repair torn window screens and drain any standing water to avoid mosquito bites. One of the eight people wounded in a Dorchester shooting Saturday morning is being held without bail for his involvement in the incident. 21-year-old Sebastian Montero Fernandez was arraigned from his hospital bed today on several firearms-related charges. He was shot in the leg. He'll be back in court next month for a dangerousness hearing. The woman tapped as the state's interim secretary of transportation has not taken on the role yet, but Monica Tibbetts-Nutt is already winning support to be a permanent replacement for the outgoing transportation chief, Gina Fiendaka. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Tibbetts-Nutt is currently the undersecretary of transportation. She'll take over for Fiendaka when Fiendaka's resignation goes into effect next month. 
Transit advocate Brian Kane of the MBTA Advisory Board tells WVUR's Radio Boston he's impressed by Tibbetts Nut's prior experience as head of the Boston area private 128 Business Council shuttle service. She ran that thing like a Swiss clock. So Monica is the real deal. And if the governor is listening, I would urge her to take the acting part of that title off right now and just appoint Monica as the next Secretary of Transportation. Kane and Tibbetts not once worked together at the MBTA Advisory Board. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Three Massachusetts entities will receive a total of nearly $8.5 million from the federal government to recoup costs from the pandemic. More than half the funds will be used to reimburse Tufts Medical Center for overtime costs its employees incurred during the pandemic. City of Cambridge will get more than $2 million for the additional staff it brought on, and Lawrence will get nearly $1.5 million for the cost of COVID testing kits. Boston's Children's Museum is hosting a party right now for the city's newest public school students. Museum President and CEO Carol Charno says the kids have access to the museum's exhibits, they can explore a school bus, and can even get a new backpack if they show up after 6.30. It's just this fantastic jamboree um, and a wonderful way to kick off the school year for these wonderful, happy, incoming kindergartners. Students can also get eye and dental checkups and and sign up for kindergarten, too. The party runs until 7.30. And the town of Ashland is roping off a town square because of an invasion of wasps. Town officials wrote on Facebook that the swarm in Montenegro Square includes yellow jackets and paper wasps. Ashland's DPW is working to clear the square. Meantime, people are asked to stay away from the area. 73 degrees now, lots of clouds around overnight tonight, some rain that should stick around for the first part of tomorrow, then sunshine moving in for the remainder of the day tomorrow, warming to about 78 degrees. 73 now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Evacuations have been ordered and schools were closed today along much of Florida's Gulf Coast. Hurricane Idalia is expected to hit the state tomorrow with winds of 125 miles an hour and a storm surge as high as 15 feet in some areas. The National Hurricane Center says the storm is likely to make landfall in Florida's Big Bend region. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says people who live along the Gulf Coast from Tampa Bay to Panama City need to prepare. you got to watch how this thing goes and, and where it can impact. It could veer west and hit places like Tallahassee. It could veer further east and end up impacting more directly uh, other parts of the Florida peninsula. Well, NPR's Greg Allen is covering all this from St. Petersburg on Tampa Bay. And Greg, tell us what you're seeing around town. Well, we see a lot of people getting ready for this hurricane. Um, Tampa Bay appears to be likely to avoid a direct hit from the storm. But the big concern here is the storm surge, which is estimated to be as much as four to seven feet. And this is an area that's very low and susceptible to flooding. I was on St. Petersburg Beach today where we ran into Steve Sewell. He was filling as many sandbags as he could to protect his house from storm surge. I'll tell you what, it's been hard trying to get enough sand for your home. I mean, this one little layer of sandbags just doesn't seem to do it. I mean, they're calling for that four-foot surge, so I'm at sea level, so I'm trying to get up three or four feet, but 
you know, finding bags. There are no bags. And, and that's near the southern end of the potential landfall range. More than 20 Florida counties have called for evacuations. Does it seem like people are following those orders? Well, officials say they're not seeing the number of cars on the road that they've seen in some earlier evacuations in previous years, including last year in Hurricane Ian. They say that might be because people have learned you don't need to go far. You're always told to just go out of the evacuation zone a mile or two. People are being encouraged to stay with friends and family or, or book a hotel room for a night or two. And that's what uh, Marisa Canuck is doing. I talked to her today at St. Petersburg Beach. She was doing what she could to safeguard her home, but was planning to spend the night in a short-term rental just a few miles inland. Well, I came from New Jersey. I moved down here about four years ago, and I lived through Superstorm Sandy. So I've seen what water can do and I'm not taking any chances. You know, St. Petersburg Beach, and in fact, this whole area, Tampa Bay, was very quiet today. Many people do seem to have evacuated, but some say they're staying. Why would they stay despite warnings that the storm surge could be seven feet or more? Well, some people feel that they are ready and can safely ride out a storm. I visited a restaurant in St. Pete Beach today that's planning to remain open even tomorrow, the owner said. Steve Sewell, uh, the guy who was doing sandbags earlier, said he's not planning to leave. I'm gonna stay. I've, I've done the run to Alabama, you know, and you come back and your neighborhood's bone dry, and you're like, Phew. so I don't know. I think this time I'm going to hang. I hope it's the right call. <laughs> Idalia is expected to make landfall tomorrow well north of Tampa Bay, but the storm surge here could begin arriving well before that. We'll talk about the situation where it is likely to make landfall. What impacts are people likely to see there? Well, that's up in the Big Bend area. That's where Florida's Gulf Coast meets the Panhandle. It's a relatively undeveloped area with just uh, mostly small towns. At the same time, it's especially susceptible to storm surge. And many homes there are older homes, not built to withstand hurricanes. With 125 mile per hour winds and a storm surge as high as 15 feet, Idalia is going to do a lot of damage. Um, search and rescue crews are standing by, officials say, and they may begin rescues tomorrow evening if rescues are necessary, just as soon as the storm passes. Uh, Governor DeSantis says because that's a rural area with a lot of trees, there's likely to be widespread power outages and down trees and lines. There are uh, tens of thousands of linemen pre-positioned, ready to go to, re go to work to restore power. But all that's likely to take time, especially if we see major damage to the infrastructure. Uh, Dahlia is a fast-moving storm, and it's going to be bringing tropical storm force winds, heavy rain, and storm surge beyond Florida up into coastal Georgia by tomorrow afternoon. And officials are warning about the possibility of flooding and tornadoes as the storm moves inland through Florida and up to the Carolinas. And PR's Greg Allen, thank you. You're welcome. Let's turn now to other developments in Florida where more details are still emerging about that racist and deadly attack in Jacksonville over the weekend. A white gunman who had espoused extremist views opened fire in a Dollar General store, killing three people, all of them black. City officials have been clear. They say hate has no place in Jacksonville. But during the last year, some organizations have staged increasingly brazen displays of hate in that city and across the state. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is here. And Odette, just fill me in here. What kind of activities are we talking about extremists have undertaken in Jacksonville? Well, prior to this shooting, the most brazen recent display was the projection of a giant cross and swastika onto a downtown building in Jacksonville. Um, which prompted the city council to pass legislation barring those kind of projections onto private property without the owner's consent. Mm -hmm. um, but that stunt has been repeated elsewhere in Florida. And it's an example both of how emboldened the movement has become in that state 
and of how they're coordinating with each other. So, you know, you may recall just this past June, neo-Nazis were waving flags outside the entrance to Disney World. Yeah. Um, but I will note that Jacksonville authorities say that so far there's no evidence that the suspect in the Jacksonville shooting was connected to a large group. Um, but the tragedy is happening at a time that Florida really is at the leading edge of a resurgence of extremist activity in this country. When you say at the leading edge, what's the data? What are the numbers to back that up? Well, the Anti-Defamation League has documented over 700 instances of white supremacist propaganda within the last five years. So that includes things like flyering and banner drops. Uh, but also uh, anti-Semitic incidents have nearly doubled in that state between 2020 and 2022. Um, another organization that tracks hate, the Southern Poverty Law Center, has documented 89 hate and anti-government groups in Florida in 2022. And that trails only California. And actually, we know that that count is incomplete. Um, for example, we know one anti-Semitic group called the Goyim Defense League announced last year that they were moving from California to Florida. So, you know, this is all contributing to an environment where some minorities are feeling unsafe. You know, just last May, we saw a number of organizations, including the NAACP, the League of United Latin American Citizens, uh, Equality Florida, and the Human Rights Campaign all issue travel and relocation warnings for Florida. Why? I mean, why does Florida seem to be such fertile ground for these groups, these movements to spread their messages? Well, to start, Florida is diverse. Uh, and to extremists, that translates to being target rich. But there's another thing here that relates to how extremists and their movements operate. Here's Oren Siegel of the Anti-Defamation League. Extremists never miss an opportunity to exploit a public discussion, and many of those happening in Florida are consistent with their agenda. So, Mary Louise, you know, specifically, they're finding common cause with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's quote, war on woke, um, this agenda that further marginalizes black people and their history and trans voices and so on. Well, and on that, I should note, I know Governor DeSantis has condemned uh, this most recent violence. He's also condemned targeting people based on their race. Yes. And he's also bolstered measures to combat anti-Semitism in Florida. But he's also been at the leading edge of anti-trans state legislation in a state where trans people and their allies are increasingly unsafe. Um, here's Cassie Miller of the Southern Poverty Law Center. We shouldn't see demonstrations against LGBTQ inclusive spaces and things like racist violence as separate. They're all aimed at creating fear among the targeted groups. This is all part of a broader political project. And so this idea that the political hard right can just peel off one group for protections but target another, you know, it ends up making all of these groups unsafe. Thank you, Odette. Thank you. And Pierre's Odette Youssef. All right, you're at a concert. Do you stand up or sit down? That debate reignited this week after a fan at an Adele show in Las Vegas stood, sang, and filmed himself during her show even though many of the people in his section were seated. A security guard got involved, so did Adele. And as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, making everybody happy at a concert isn't always easy. In a video, Juan Lastra passionately belts out every word to Adele's song. A woman comes up and tells him people are upset. Behind you, everybody's upset. 
When a security guard approaches him, Adele stops the show. What is going on with that young man there? He's been bothered so much. Another fan responds. Adele was having none of it. It is kind of our worst nightmare. Sam Swirsky is the house manager at Wolf Trap National Park for the Performing Arts in Virginia. It is one of the worst situations that you could have where uh, the concert actually stops and uh, the artist is talking to my staff about how we should be doing our job. It might seem like a personal decision. You want to stand up and sing, or you want or need to stay seated. There are regular debates about this. Swirsky says what his venue enforces is up to the artist. You know, do you want us to ha have a, a hands-off uh, attitude? And a lot of artists thrive on that. They want to see their fans up on their feet, dancing, singing along. Um, that's just part of what gives them the energy to put on a great performance. At Adele's concert, fans say there were signs encouraging them to stand up. But when there's no guidance from the venue, what should you do? Audrey Fix Schaefer is a spokesperson for IMP, which owns concert venues in the D.C. area. It's really uh, a bit of a social contract with other concert goers where people are able to enjoy it by being conscientious of each other, but then also knowing that everybody enjoys it in a different way. As for Juan Lastra, the fan who made headlines, he told TMZ he was sorry others complained. But I only had one opportunity to see her, and I took it. I took it as I wanted. Lastra thanked Adele for this breathtaking night and for standing up for me. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on Marketplace in about 10 minutes, the growing number of homeowners who are going without home insurance. Business news coming up at 6.30. Wall Street now, though, a big upswing today on the street. The Dow rose more than eight-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly one and a half percent. And the Nasdaq grew by one and three-quarters percent as tech stocks rebounded. The Healy administration is awarding dozens of organizations money to expand the state's clean energy workforce. More than $18 million in grants will be distributed among 44 organizations that bring underrepresented populations into the clean energy sector. They include minority and women-owned businesses. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Red Sox look to Brian Bayo to turn the tables on the Astros tonight as Bayo takes the hill for the Sox. J.P. France starts for Houston. Game time is 7-10. And the New England Patriots have waived backup quarterback Bailey Zappi. The 24-year-old was the third-string quarterback on the team last season. Today, the team also cut quarterback Malik Cunningham. That leaves Mac Jones as the only quarterback currently on the Pats roster. Today was the day NFL teams had to trim their rosters to the league maximum 53 players. This is WBUR 73 degrees in the Boston area at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu.
This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Prices for prescription drugs here in the U.S. are way higher than in other countries. Today we have learned which 10 drugs the Biden administration wants to make more affordable for those on Medicare. They include medications for blood clots, diabetes, heart conditions, arthritis. Well, the push to rein in prescription drug costs is something a lot of us have tracked or waited on for years. Some experts tell NPR this is the first round bell of what is expected to be a heavyweight battle between the government and drug makers. Well, let's talk it through with Neera Tandon, domestic policy advisor to President Biden. We've reached her at the White House to ask why prioritize these drugs? Well, the most important issue here is that this is the first 10 drugs. The Inflation Reduction Act specifies that we are negotiating these first 10 drugs this year, and then next year there will be an additional 15 drugs. After that, 15 drugs and then 20 drugs a year. So the Inflation Reduction Act itself, the statute specified the requirements of what makes the list. And it's really focused on the highest expenditures by Medicare. So you're hoping this is the beginning of a list that will get longer. Got it. Oh, we know it's the beginning. It's definitely the beginning. Well, let me put to you some of the challenges out there. One, the pharmaceutical industry contends that these type price negotiations will chill innovation, will ultimately hurt patient access to new medications. How do you respond to that? This has been a well-studied issue. The Congressional Budget Office did a real deep dive into this particular question, and they determined that the Inflation Reduction Act Medicare negotiation would only affect, would limit one drug out of thousands in the next 10 years, just a handful of drugs over the next 30 years. So this argument about innovation, we consider it a false argument because... Well, and I hear you saying it's been studied, but if drug makers, who, as the name suggests, are the people making the drugs, if they say this is going to chill innovation, um, you're entirely confident that that's not the case? Yes, because they're able to manage with lower drug costs in every other country in the world. And so there is plenty of investment that they can make. And what we're really saying is that it is wrong for Americans to pay two to three times more in America than they pay than these same drug companies for the same drugs charge in other countries. Just practically speaking, as you know, lawsuits have already been filed around the country to stop price negotiations like this. Um, Pharmaceutical companies are calling these provisions unconstitutional. Is there a real possibility these price cuts may not actually come to pass? Well, first of all, Medicare has the ability to negotiate and does negotiate and has negotiated for decades uh, every other aspect of the healthcare system. It's the only reason why Medicare has not been negotiating drug prices is because there was a prohibition in the law, a sweetheart deal that really the pharmaceutical companies got decades ago. The Inflation Reduction Act ended that. There is absolutely nothing in the Constitution that prohibits Medicare from negotiating drug prices. So to people who may be thinking about, you know, something totally different, but say student debt relief, which the Mm -hmm. administration argued would happen and was constitutional, that plan was struck down by the Supreme Court. You're quite sure that drug price negotiations won't wind up in in a similar situation? So the argument that the court used against student debt relief, an argument we think is wrong, that argument was that the student debt relief was a major question for Congress. Mm -hmm. This is a major question that has been answered by Congress by passing the Inflation Reduction Act. On the timing, whatever price drops do result from these negotiations, my understanding is they will not happen before 2026. 
that's obviously after the 2024 election. How do you get voters to give the president credit for this when they go to the polls? The Inflation Reduction Act is already producing lower costs for Americans. $35 insulin for seniors is a product of the Inflation Reduction Act. We've also lowered health care costs for 15 million Americans uh, by $800. And these drug prices will be public in September of 2024. People will see these prices are down. These are subject to negotiation, but they will be implemented in 2026. But people will know that these, these prices are coming in the fall of 2024. Neera Tandon on the line from the White House, where she is domestic policy advisor. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Summers are busy for farmers in New England. It's when they make much of their money and when we get to eat all the corn and berries we can snarf down. But farms in the region are facing a growing threat from climate change. As part of this week's climate change coverage called Beyond Normal, New England News Collaborative's Mara Hoplamazian goes to two farms in New Hampshire that are trying to head off the threat. It was hot and humid on the July day. I visited Fresh Start Farms in Concord, and vegetables were growing strong. This is African eggplants and tomatoes, amaranth, kale. Anthony Munene is the project manager for the new American Sustainable Agriculture Project, which has farms across New Hampshire. The organization helps set up people who arrive as immigrants or refugees with training and land to start as farmers. Munene has been with the organization for more than eight years, and he's seen the effects of climate change. I know this year it's raining a lot, but sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's either it's too hot or too much rain. Fresh Start has not had the same experience as some other farms this summer, who've lost whole harvests to flooding. But they've had their share of drought, pests, and soggy fields. This summer, with help from the USDA, they've opened up a new demonstration farm where they're trying some things they hope will make them more resilient to any climate challenge. Munene says it comes down to two things. Soil and water, soil and water. If you're able to have good soil, which has enough organic matter, then it can keep and also release water quick, which is good. At the Climate Smart demonstration farm, Munene's team started by planting a cover crop, that gets planted outside of the usual growing season to help keep the soil healthy. And they built high tunnels, a kind of greenhouse, with solar panels on top and rain barrels for irrigation. Munene says a big help is the crops farmers are growing. They are growing very handy, ethnic crops, which don't get affected at all by too much rain. They are growing like amaranth, amaranth like water. Night saint, night saint laugh. A lot of water. Everywhere people are growing lettuce and tomatoes are rotting. Just a few miles from the Fresh Start demonstration farm, the current generation of family farmers running Bohannon Farm are also trying out some new practices for climate resilience. Nate Robertson is in charge of the dairy cows, about 120 right now. So even before humans start feeling heat stress, really, the cows feel it a lot. At Bohannon, they've set up fans and sprinklers for the cows on hot days. And they're looking into new ways of breeding cows and designing barns for a hotter climate. Cy Robertson, Nate's brother, is focusing on the fields that grow grain for the cows. The fungi and the microbes and even like the insects and worms that are growing in the soil, um, they do a lot of good for feeding the crops. 
About five years ago, the farm got some money from the USDA to help transition to no-till farming, meaning they don't turn over the soil before planting in it. And they check in regularly with experts from the University of New Hampshire. Jamie Robertson, Cy and Nate's father, says all of these changes have sometimes been tough to watch. The farm has been in his wife's family since 1907. And he says with the no-till system, the fields in spring look like a messy house. One of the things I do miss is that a nice tilled field, when that corn first starts coming up, you know, you hear popping up in rows, and it's just these ribbons of little green rows for acres. But Jamie and his sons see how the fields are healthier now. Corn that never grew well in the past is thriving. Anthony Munene says farmers at Fresh Start are also seeing that the plants grown on the climate demonstration farm are performing better. And the farmers themselves have realized that to mitigate the climate change, yes, it's very important to approach things different. As wetter weather and hotter summers become the norm, Munene is letting other farmers know there's help available and a few changes can make a big difference. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. We'll have more stories of the regional impact of our changing climate all this week on All Things Considered and on Morning Edition on WBUR. You can also check out the stories at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com.